Hello, everyone, and welcome to the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that an employer's failure to provide an injured worker with a DWC-1 prevents the carrier from asserting a Lachey's defense. Here's what happened in the published case of Truck Insurance Exchange versus the WCAB. Mr. Kwok, the injured worker, was employed as a restaurant manager and waiter by New Square Corporation, which operated the restaurant where he was employed. The owner of the restaurant was Mr. King Tok Chung, who was also the older brother of Mr. Kwok's wife. In 2005, rain was coming into the restaurant dining area, so Mr. Kwok went out to the backyard area with a ladder to inspect the leak. A few minutes later, Mr. Kwok was found lying on the ground unconscious with the ladder next to him. Mr. Kwok sustained a brain hemorrhage and continues to be paralyzed from the shoulders down, and he requires 24-hour medical care. Mrs. Chung notified the owner, Mr. Chung, of Kwok's accident by way of a phone call the day after it occurred. At the time, the owner was then in Hong Kong for treatment of an illness. Seven years later, Mr. Kwok's wife filed a workers' compensation claim for her husband's injury. She decided to file the claim after hearing a radio program about workers' compensation cases and began inquiring with attorneys. The restaurant was insured for workers' compensation by farmers, which first got notice of the 2005 claim in July 2012. Farmers tried to verify coverage but had difficulty verifying the dates of coverage due to the number of years since the injury, but the WCIRB ultimately did confirm coverage. Farmers then investigated the claim but was provided limited information from the owners. The cause of the fall was unknown because no one actually witnessed it. Farmers finally sent a timely notice of potential eligibility letter and Kwok's claim was not denied within the 90-day period mandated in Labor Code Section 5402. Accordingly, farmers' delay triggered the rebuttable presumption that the claim was compensable. After trial, the work comp judge concluded that Mr. Kwok sustained a compensable injury and concluded that the statute of limitations did not bar Mr. Kwok's claim. But the work comp judge did not address the issue of latches, which was raised as an issue in the pretrial conference statement. Farmer's contention with respect to latches was that the carrier was greatly prejudiced by the lengthy delay in filing an application for adjudication of claim. A petition for reconsideration was denied, and the Court of Appeals sustained the WCAB in the published case of Truck Insurance Exchange versus WCAB. Within one working day of receiving notice or knowledge of an injury, the employer is required to provide to the employee a claim form and a notice of potential eligibility for workers' compensation benefits known as the NOPE letter. The work comp judge concluded that in this case, this apparently was never done. If an employer breaches this statutory duty, the statute of limitations period is told for the period of time that the employee remains unaware of his rights. Notice to or knowledge of a workplace injury on the part of the employer is deemed to be notice or knowledge on the part of the insurer. 
Since Farmers is deemed to have known of the injury the day after it occurred, Farmers cannot show delay in receiving notice of the claim, which is an essential element of the Latches defense. The Court of Appeal also ruled that an excess carrier may sue the underlying primary carrier for failure to settle a pending claim within the primary policy limit. Here's what happened in the published case of Ace American Insurance versus Fireman's Fund. John Franco was working on a film set when a special effects accident caused him to suffer serious injuries. His injuries included pelvic crush injuries, a broken hip, fractures to both femurs, crush injuries to both knees, broken tibias and fibulas, broken ribs, a punctured lung, and soft tissue injuries to his face. His employer had two primary insurance policies with Fireman's Fund and an excess insurance policy with Ace American Insurance Company. When the injured worker sued, Fireman's Fund defended the case, and the case eventually settled with the participation and contribution from both insurers. The Francos made settlement demands within the limits of the Fireman's Fund policies, and the excess carrier alleged that the demands were reasonable and supported by substantial evidence. But Fireman's Fund failed and or refused to pay those demands within the insurance policy limits. Ultimately, the Francos settled their lawsuit for an amount substantially in excess of the limits of the Fireman's Fund policies. Ace American contributed to the amounts in excess of the Fireman's Fund policy limits. Ace American then sued Fireman's Fund for equitable subrogation. They alleged that the injured worker initially offered to settle his case within the limits of the Fireman's Fund policies and that Fireman's Fund unreasonably rejected those settlement offers. Ace American alleged that as a result, it was required to contribute to the eventual settlement, which exceeded the limits of the Fireman's Fund policies. But Fireman's Fund demurred, arguing that an excess insurer may only sue for equitable subrogation if there has been a judgment against the insured that exceeds the limits of the primary policy. Because the Franco lawsuit settled and there was no judgment, Fireman's Fund argued that Ace American could not sue for equitable subrogation. And the trial court sustained the demur without leave to amend and dismissed the case so Ace American appealed. The Court of Appeal reversed the dismissal and reinstated the suit in the published case of Ace American Insurance versus Fireman's Fund. On appeal, the question presented is whether Ace American has stated viable causes of action for equitable subrogation and breach of the duty of good faith and fair dealing, or whether the lack of a judgment in the employment injury case bars Ace American's claims. There are conflicting decisions from different divisions of the 2nd District Court of Appeal on this issue. A case in Division I held that an equitable subrogation action could proceed against a primary insurer that initially breached its duty to settle a case within the policy limits, resulting in a settlement that exceeded policy limits. But this contrasted with a case in Division V that held that an equitable subrogation action could not proceed under the same circumstances. 
This division of the Second District Court of Appeal agreed with Division One and found that the lack of an excess judgment against the insured in the underlying case does not bar an action for equitable subrogation and breach of the duty of good faith and fair dealing. And now our crime report. A 47-year-old man who has had his doctor's license revoked after being convicted in 2013 of sexually abusing a patient at the Northridge Hospital is alleged to have violated the terms of his probation by continuing to perform medical exams with no license. Kevin Pazischke, MD, was issued a physician and surgeon certificate from the Medical Board of California back in 1998. He was a 1995 graduate of the USC Keck School of Medicine. In May of 2013, he was charged with three counts of sexual penetration by a foreign object against two victims and three counts of sexual battery by fraud against both victims all violations of the California Penal Code. Bezeski pleaded no contest in September 2013 to one felony count of sexual battery by fraud. He was then sentenced to three years formal probation, a year of counseling, and lifetime sexual offender registration. After his conviction, the Medical Board of California filed an accusation against him for the purposes of revoking his medical certificate and, indeed, his license was revoked as of March 2014. But now he is again in trouble with the law. The Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Gregory Dohe revoked his probation based upon allegations that he performed an ultrasound on a female patient, although he no longer has a medical license. He is also reported to have conducted an ultrasound on yet another woman. The two pregnant women who allegedly received the ultrasound examinations were patients at St. Joseph Medical Clinic in Panorama City. Pazetsky could face up to four years in state prison if found in violation of probation. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB Governing Committee voted to authorize the WCIRB to submit a January 2017 advisory pure premium rate filing to the California Insurance Commissioner. The filing will propose advisory pure premium rates that are less than the corresponding industry pure premium rate as of last July. This marks the fourth consecutive filing that the WCIRB has suggested a decrease in pure premium rates totaling 18.6% when compared to the approved January 1, 2015 advisory pure premium rates. The governing committee, the WCIRB chief actuary, also identified some of the factors contributing to the reduced indication of pure premium rates. He said that medical losses on 2014 and prior accident years continued to develop favorably. Medical claim costs on 2015 accidents are emerging at lower than projected levels, and indemnity claims are settling at quicker rates than in the recent past, and forecasts of future wage level growth in California have increased. Despite these positive trends, post-SB863 loss adjustment expenses and indemnity claim frequency continue to emerge higher than projected. But These increases have been more than offset by favorable medical loss trends. 
The California Department of Insurance will schedule a public hearing to consider the filing. And once the notice of proposed action and notice of public hearing is issued, the WCIRB will post a copy in the publications and filing sections of its website. In what the Insurance Journal called a success, Bermuda-based Castle Point Holdings held its initial public offering of nearly 8 million common shares back in 2007. This IPO raised approximately $111 million. And prior to the IPO, the New York-based Tower Group entered into a strategic relationship with Castle Point in 2006. It became the sole shareholder of its subsidiary, Castle Point Ray, in February after it invested $15 million in the company. Tower was made up of 10 insurance companies domiciled in six states that operated on a largely consolidated financial basis through an intercompany reinsurance pooling agreement. Tower wrote workers' compensation business in California through Tower Insurance Company of New York, Castle Point National Insurance Company, and Preserver Insurance Company. Well, things change. The Tower Group's troubles started emerging during 2013 when it announced that it had deficiencies of nearly $400 million in its aggregate policyholder loss reserves. That situation was compounded by accounting errors that resulted in the parent company, Tower Group, withdrawing its previously filed consolidated financial statements for 2011 and 2012. And in September 2014, the Tower Group was acquired by ACP Ray, a Bermuda reinsurer with ownership aligned with Amtrust Financial Services and National General Holdings. While that acquisition substantially improved Tower's situation by migrating policy and claims administration to more reliable data systems at Amtrust and National General, the volatility and deterioration of the pre-acquisition claims continued unabated through 2015. By the end of 2015, the Tower Group reported additional loss reserve deficiencies well above $400 million. During the past several weeks, the California Department of Insurance, in close cooperation with fellow regulators in several other states, formed a plan with the owners of ACP Ray and other related parties to consolidate the entire Tower Group into a single company so policyholders of the entire Tower Group of insurance companies could be protected in a single legal proceeding here in California. Castle Point National Insurance Company, the sole remaining insurance company member of the Tower Group, was placed into cons conservation in July. The California commissioner quickly filed a motion seeking approval of a conservation and liquidation plan for Castle Point. The hearing on the motion to approve the plan is set for 9.30 a.m. on Tuesday, September 13, at the San Francisco Superior Court. And in medical news, new research published in the journal Scientific Reports claims that paraplegic patients recovered partial control and feeling in their limbs after training to use a variety of brain-machine interface technologies. 
The researchers followed eight patients paralyzed by spinal cord injuries as they adapted to the use of the brain activity technologies that power devices such as exoskeletons and robotic arms. The patients used virtual reality scenarios and simulated tactile feedback exercises to train their minds. And the professor of neuroscience and biomedical engineering at Duke University said that much to his big surprise, long-term training with brain-machine interfaces triggers a partial neurological recovery. And some of these patients regain voluntary control of muscles in the legs below the level of the lesion and regain sensitivity below the level of the spinal cord injury. The researchers believe that the training in effect rewired the circuitry in the brain, giving it new ways to communicate with parts of the injured body. They theorize that they may have actually triggered a plastic reorganization in the cortex by reinserting a representation of lower limbs and locomotion in the cortex. A professor of neurobiology and behavior at the University of California, Irvine, said in an interview that the results of this study are very encouraging. He believes that not only is it possible to train paraplegics to use their thinking to activate something to help them, like a robotic arm, but now we can improve their situation even further. A meta-review of clinical trials by researchers shows that three popular orthopedic surgeries are actually useless. Before a drug can be marketed, it has to go through rigorous testing with the FDA to show it is safe and effective. But surgery is different, as the FDA does not regulate surgical procedures. So what happens when an operation is subjected to and fails the ultimate test, a clinical trial in which patients are randomly assigned to have it or not? Spinal fusion is an operation that welds together adjacent vertebrae to relieve back pain from worn-out discs. Unlike most operations, it actually was tested in four clinical trials. What was the conclusion? Spinal fusion surgery was no better than alternative non-surgical treatments like supervised exercise and therapy to help patients deal with back pain. In both groups, the pain usually diminished or went away. The studies were completed by the early 2000s and should have been enough to greatly limit or stop the surgery, says a professor of evidence-based medicine at the Oregon Health and Sciences University. But that did not happen. Instead, spinal fusion rates increased. The clinical trials had little effect. Spinal fusion rates continued to soar in the United States until 2012, shortly after Blue Cross of North Carolina said it would no longer pay and some other insurers followed suit. Some wonder that it may have been financial disincentives that accomplished something that scientific evidence alone could not. And other operations continued to be reimbursed despite clinical trials that cast doubt on their effectiveness. In 2009, the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine published results of separate clinical trials on a popular back operation, vertebroplasty, comparing it to a sham procedure. They have found that there was no benefit. Pain relief was the same in both groups. Yet, it and a similar operation 
kyphoplasty in which doctors inject a sort of cement into the spine to shore it up continued to be performed. The latest controversy and the operation that arguably has been studied the most in randomized clinical trials is surgery for a torn meniscus, a sliver of cartilage that acts as a shock absorber in the knee. It is a condition that often afflicts middle-aged and older people simply as a consequence of the degeneration that can occur with age and often accompanying osteoarthritis. The result can be a painful swollen knee that sometimes feels as if it is catches or locks up. About 400,000 middle-aged and older Americans a year have meniscus surgery. Orthopedists wondered if the operation made sense because they realized there was not even a clear relationship between knee pain and meniscus tears. When they did MRI scans on knees of middle-aged people, they often saw meniscus tears in people who said they had no pain. And those who said their knee hurt tended to have osteoarthritis, which could be the real reason for their pain. And not everyone improves after the meniscus surgery. Many doctors have been genuinely uncertain about which is better, exercise and physical therapy or meniscus surgery. That, in fact was what led colleagues to conduct a clinical trial comparing surgery with physical therapy in middle-aged people with a torn meniscus and knee pain. What was the result? The surgery offered little to the most who had it. Other studies came to the same conclusion, and so did a meta-analysis published last year of nine clinical trials testing the meniscus surgery. Patients tended to report less pain, but Patients reported less pain no matter what the treatment, even fake surgery. They then came yet another study published in July in the British Medical Journal. It compared the operation to exercise in patients who did not have osteoarthritis but had knee pain and meniscus tears. Once again, the surgery offered no additional benefit. An accompanying editorial came to a scathing conclusion. The surgery is a highly questionable practice without supporting evidence of even moderate quality, adding that good evidence has been widely ignored. Global pressure on health spending is forcing the $1 trillion a year pharmaceutical industry to look for new ways to price its products, charging based on how much they improve patients' health rather than how many pills or vials are sold seems to be the new way. And some experiments in pricing have already been made. But shifting the overall industry to a new model requires improvements in data collection and a change in thinking, say drug pricing experts. The big problem is that it's difficult to get the right data and agree on what the right outcomes are to measure. In the past, Governments and insurers made room in their budgets for new drugs. By switching to cheap generics as patents expired on older drugs. But today, generics are already accounting for nearly 9 out of every 10 prescriptions in key markets like the United States, and fewer big drugs are coming off patent. That leaves little headroom for pricey new medicines even as they come to market in growing numbers. The FDA has already approved 16 new drugs this year. 
Pharmacy benefits managers administering the U.S. Health plans are pushing back hard by excluding some drugs deemed too expensive, leading to a crunch in areas like diabetes, a disease that now accounts for 12% of global healthcare spending. The chief executives of Novartis, Eli Lilly, and GlaxoSmithKline have all warned recently that pricing will become increasingly challenging across the board. Accounting for 40% of global drug sales, the fate of the U.S. market is front and center in the minds of drug company executives. The Novartis CEO believes drug makers must develop value-for-money pricing models, like the performance-based deal the Swiss drug maker recently struck with two U.S. insurers for its new heart failure drug. Under that deal, payments for Novartis's Entresto pill are to be calculated on the future based on the proven reduction in the proportion of the insurer's patients admitted to the hospital for heart failure, not on the number of pills they consume. The aim is a flexible pricing system that rebates the healthcare providers when a drug does not work as planned and charges more when it works well. Europe is in the vanguard of such moves. Britain agreed an early performance-based deal for a Johnson & Johnson blood cancer drug back in 2007. And Italy also uses patient data to pay for cancer drugs based on actual patient responses. GlaxoSmithKline sees this outcomes-based approach slowly becoming the norm in more disease areas and geographies. The Pharmaceuticals Industry European Trade Association is already discussing ways to shift to outcomes pricing following price curbs in Germany that have caused some companies to pull products off the market and effective rationing in Britain where strict cost-effectiveness rules apply. Authorities in Asia's two biggest markets, China and Japan, are also intervening in new ways to cap runaway costs. And some experts say that wearable technology may be the employee health game changer. Wearable technology is a category of technology devices that can be worn by an individual to collect tracking information related to health and fitness. Some wearables have small motion sensors to report data back to the user. Today, many wearable devices are embedded in jewelry, clothing, shoes, bionic suits, and smart helmets. These wearables use sophisticated biosensors to track metrics such as physical activity, heart rate, fatigue, stress, and mood. Wearables may be one of the fastest growing technology sectors, predicted to hit $10 billion annually within the next three years, and they are poised to become a trend in the management of injured workers. And the workers' compensation industry is staking a claim in wearable technology. Employers and payors already are adopting wearable technology in the workplace to reduce costs and improve safety and productivity through injury prevention and recovery. Applications can range from tracking locations to reduce the risk of injury in unsafe areas to monitoring posture and compliance with ergonomic use of equipment to using smart wheelchairs and exoskeletons to improve and restore mobility. 
the Risk and Insurance Management Society 2016 presentation entitled The New Game Changer in Managing Worksite Health, Wearable Technology, identified four main categories of wearable technology with significant potential for workers' compensation. One is postural devices. That is, the use of postural devices in the workplace, which is intended to positively remind employees to be aware of their posture throughout the day. Workers are sent an alert if they repeatedly slouch or deviate from ergonomically correct positions. This assistive technology benefits employees by reminding them to stretch or adjust periodically while also helping to prevent ergonomic-related workers' compensation claims. Also, activity trackers. If a physical therapist has recommended physical activities such as daily walks to rebuild muscle strength, the case manager can track the degree of activity of that injured worker. If the tracking device records lower physical activity levels than prescribed, intervention and counseling can take place to improve compliance or develop a different treatment plan. They also recommend exoskeletons. Injured workers, such as paraplegics, amputees, and individuals with disabilities, can include gait impediments, can reclaim a part of their lives they thought was lost forever, walking. And location trackers. In industries such as construction and mining, location trackers are an effective tool for injury prevention along with employee communication. From a prevention perspective, trackers can be set up to alert employers when workers enter unsafe areas. From a communications perspective, trackers allow employers to locate their employees in the event of an emergency for evacuation purposes. In addition, employees who are in danger can have a panic button feature that lets supervisors know immediately that they need help while transmitting their location. Wearables are already beginning to improve the way workers' compensation injuries are managed and prevented, getting injured workers healthy and back on the job quickly and safely. The industry is currently in the early adopter stage of incorporating wearables into its toolkit, but we can expect to see considerable transformation in medical management and case management within the next several years. And in other news, according to the 278-page study titled California's 40-Year Legacy of Hostility to Business in the Last Seven Years, at least 9,000 companies have left California for a better business environment. And the author places the blame on the Golden State's hostile business environment. He cites as evidence the 2015 Chief Executive Magazine Annual Survey of Business Climates, which was completed by 511 CEOs across the U.S. In this study, states were measured across three key categories to achieve their overall ranking. For the 11th year in a row, Chief Executive Magazine found California to be the worst state for business in 2015. This placement is not near the worst, but actually the worst, as California ranked 50 out of 50, the lowest rank possible for each of the last 11 years. 
One participant in the study commented that California could hardly do more to discourage business if that was the goal. The state regulators and taxes companies unreasonably. And another said that California is getting worse if that is even possible. But despite the growing anti-business environment, California economy grew for decades due to wonderful scenery and climate, a workforce with technical expertise, and trade access to the Asian nations. But since the start of the Great Recession and accelerating after Governor Brown's election in 2009, a mass exodus of businesses from the not-so-golden state to more friendly locations like Texas and Nevada has occurred. Between 2011 and 2012, the Bureau of Labor Statistics data compiled by Bloomberg News indicated that California lost ground in a related category, the number of business establishments altogether. There were 1.3 million businesses in California at the end of 2012, 5.2% fewer than in the previous year. That's a loss of 73,000 businesses. The top 10 states that California businesses have relocated to over the last seven years are in the following order, Texas, then Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Virginia. Los Angeles was at the top of the list of the 10 California counties that suffered the highest number of disinvestment events. LA was followed by Orange County, Santa Clara, San Francisco County, San Diego County, Alameda, San Mateo, Ventura County, Sacramento, and finally Riverside counties. The report claims that the California government has a dismissive attitude toward any suggestion that California has become economically uncompetitive. One example of this attitude occurred in 2014 when Toyota Motor Corporation announced it will move its Torrance headquarters to Plano, Texas. Governor Brown revealed his aloofness towards business challenges by saying, We've got a few problems. We have lots of little burdens and regulations and taxes, but smart people figure out how to make it. Well, the Wall Street Journal came back with this. California's problem is that smart people have figured out they can make it better elsewhere. The report concludes that business interests have provided an encyclopedic accounting of California's difficult environment to Governor Brown and the legislature to no avail. In the world of workers' compensation costs, SB 863 made workers' compensation a little bit less costly. But in the big scheme of things, will it make any difference and stop disinvestment in California? And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.